And good morning to you. Go ahead and have a seat and get comfortable. It's great to see you all. Mark chapter 2 this morning. And, you know, when you hear the voice of the worshipers, it's a wonderful thing in a church body to be able to do that. I can only imagine that God also is blessed to hear it as well. And it does sort of point us to a day soon. It's a vapor away, isn't it? From that time in which we'll be around that throne worshiping him. And man, as sweet as this time is, imagine what that time will be like. I don't know if he was a Christian or not, but I had a doctor a while back. He believed, and many doctors agree with him, that perhaps as much as 50% of our physical ailments stem from emotional and stressful kinds of conditions. Things like bitterness, and heartbreak, and anger, and unforgiveness really affect people's long-term health. And some doctors, just trying to do the best that they know how, will prescribe for people pain meds or psych meds or even alcohol to deaden or numb those realities so that those things don't get the better of them someday and induce some sort of stress-related heart attack. Personally, I don't fault physicians for that. I don't fault pharmaceutical companies or even psychiatrists. But I wonder sometimes, and I'm no doctor or expert on this at all, but I wonder if sometimes, if in trying so hard to make people be healthy, we're sort of holding them back from life abundantly. Proverbs chapter 3 says this, and you all know this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. But what a whole lot of people don't know is what comes after that, which reads, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Now, please don't misunderstand anything that I'm saying this morning. I'm pro-physicians. I'm pro-exercise, healthy eating. Even if I don't do it very often, I'm still pro-healthy eating. I think it's a good thing. I'm in approval of it. But perhaps the best thing that we can do for our long-term health is to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. You see, because there is something that is far more dangerous than the threat of a heart attack, and that is a heart that is continually reasoning away their need for God in their lives. It's not bad that as a society we're living longer because of the advances in medicine. It's bad that some people place their trust in that increased longevity in order to put off their real need for Jesus Christ. The natural decay of our bodies was never meant for man to try and solve that riddle to permanently attempt to cure, but was always intended by God to show us our need for the great physician, Jesus Christ, and he shows that again here in our text this morning, pointing out for us the greater, the greatest needs of our lives. Look at it from a practical level. <clears throat> a person who is at danger, it's not the person that is going to the doctor, 
It's the person who refuses to go to the doctor because they don't want to hear the bad news. The same thing is true spiritually speaking. One prominent atheist once said Christianity is a fairy tale for people that are afraid of the dark, to which one prominent Christian responded that atheism is a fairy tale for people that are afraid of the light. Jesus in John chapter 3 said that he was the light that had come into the world. And he says, everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. You see, instinctively, people know that there's something wrong with them. Even if they get a clean bill of health from their physician, they know <clears throat> that they are slowly but surely dying, that there's something inside of them that is eating away at them. But instead of coming to God on a bed of humility, they deny or resist coming to him because they know that in coming to him, that they will have to be accountable for who they are, that they will be exposed as light exposes and darkness hides. They'll have to be exposed for who they are, which is how God desires to deal with each and every single one of us. And this is both true, by the way, of believers and unbelievers alike. Even though the context of John chapter 3, Jesus is most certainly speaking of unbelievers who like their sin and don't want to come to the light, in a way, at times for us as believers, it's true as well that we don't come to God because we don't want to hear what he has to say to us. Because although sin is pleasurable for a season, it is pleasurable for a season. And oftentimes, a backslidden Christian, which by the way could be five minutes or five weeks, doesn't want to come to God because God wants to work with us in our lives as it relates to some of those sin issues. And sometimes we don't want to hear those things. And those are the very things that are affecting us in physical ways, manifesting themselves in physical ways. And we'll take a look at that this morning and the implications for that. Jesus here in Mark chapter 2 is back in Capernaum, which is in the north area, the Galilean region of Israel. Capernaum was the headquarters for his ministry, you might say. He had gone into the synagogue and preached with authority in Mark chapter 1. He had cast out a demon in that synagogue. Later, they would leave and go to Peter's house, where he would heal Peter's mother-in-law. And then the whole town, it said, gathered at Peter's house because they had heard about what Jesus was doing. <clears throat> so the next morning, at the end of Mark chapter 1, they got up and went to the neighboring towns so that they could preach there also. Because remember, Jesus said, it's for this purpose that I have come. He didn't come to perform miracles per se. He came to preach the good news, came to die, and he came to preach and tell us about his death and his resurrection that would pay the price for our sins. Well, now he's back. He's back in Capernaum here, and there's a buzz about the city knowing that Jesus is in town. And so we pick up again in chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Now, we don't know for sure whose house this was, but because they don't elaborate here, because Mark doesn't elaborate, we can assume in the house probably means that they were back in Peter's house like they were in Mark chapter 1. And immediately, verse 2, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them. So it's standing room only or it's seating 
room only, or they're all on the floor, but they are as cramped in as can be. And it says not even near the door was there room so that they could just gather outside just to kind of hear what Jesus was saying, even if they couldn't see him. Apparently, they didn't have our modern technology to have an overflow room, hadn't thought that through, or whatever the case may be, hadn't figured it out. No overflow. Everybody's cramped in, and it says he preached, what does it say? The word to them. That surprise you at all? I hope not. It's not like um, this church or Calvary chapels or other Bible teaching churches in this world came up with some novel concept during the hippie movement or the Jesus movement. Jesus Christ was preaching the word. He wasn't talking about politics. He wasn't talking about seven steps to control your anger. He wasn't talking about what was relevant to their culture. He was preaching the word. I'm so thankful, and maybe you ought to be as well, but I'm so thankful that God allowed me to cross paths with people that believed in teaching the word, that emphasized God's word. One of the most important, one of the most valuable lessons that I ever learned was the power of the word of God all by itself. If Jesus was going to start a church in the United States of America in 2013, I believe he would preach the word as he's doing here. And Mark, again, what we've said all along is that Mark is communicating Jesus's message by showing us what he is doing. Mark is more about Jesus's actions than he is what he says, but he is communicating what Jesus is saying by what Jesus is doing. And so before every time we see something miraculous that Jesus does, Mark is so far been quick to point out that first he was preaching and then he did something, placing the emphasis on the preaching of the word as well. And then even here also, very important subtlety in this miracle, some of you are familiar with this miracle, with this story, Jesus is going to deliver a message before he produces in them the marvel of the miraculous that he's about to do. It's subtle, but it's very important that you understand that. Let's take a look at the scene here. Verse 3, it says, Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And we know from another gospel, it was four friends of this paralytic. And this is a different kind of scenario. Life as this man knew it, unlike anything probably that any of us could think of, because this man is basically confined to a three by six foot pallet prison, a bedroll, okay? That was his life. And that meant in that day and in that culture, complete dependence, total desperation. There's no assisted living facilities in that day. There's no in-home care. There's no chance for a miracle drug or a medical breakthrough or a referral to a specialist. This guy basically, this paralytic in that day has virtually no hope at all whatsoever. Which means then as a result, probably safe to say, that not a single one of us, no matter what our problems are this morning, have it quite as bad as this man has it. Now that's important to note, not just so we don't feel sorry for ourselves in life, that's not really even the point, 
later on we're going to see why this is so important in how Jesus addresses this paralytic, okay? But it's important just for you to know that he is as desperate and as hopeless as a person can be. His friends know that, and so what do they do? They do the only thing that they know they could possibly do, which is to bring this man to Jesus. And verse 4 says, And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. Think about what they're trying to do here. This is not an easy thing to do, to get a man in that condition up on top of the roof. Pretty risky. Like someone who wants to go ice fishing and drills a little hole in the ice, there's always that chance if the ice isn't thick enough, the whole thing could collapse underneath them. Same thing here. If you don't know what you're doing, when you're tearing apart a roof, the whole thing could collapse. So it's risky. Not just that, but they're going to let him down through the roof, Okay probably by ropes or something like that. It's one thing to let someone down through ropes or, or through the roof with ropes. It's another thing to have to bring that man back up if Jesus isn't able to heal him. So these friends are really hoping that Jesus can perform an incredible miracle. But there are no guarantees here at all whatsoever. And there never are guarantees that things like this are going to happen. It's so much easier not to go out on a limb for somebody or anybody. But I think it is important for us to remember, for the most part, by and large, people don't come to Christ unless they're delivered, unless they're brought to Christ. God can appear to whoever he wants in a vision or whatever the case may be, but he chooses most of the time to use people to bring other people to Jesus Christ, and that's what's happening here. So... End of verse 4, when they had broken through, and actually this is kind of funny because this exact miracle is recorded in Matthew and Luke of Jesus healing this paralytic, but neither one of those gospel writers record how the roof was broken through. And we know this gospel was written by Mark, but it was probably dictated by Peter, and it was his house that was being broken through. It's funny what he remembered about the story. You can just imagine Peter telling the story, and then they just broke through my roof, and I had to have a contractor come out the next day. Yeah, Jesus healed him. But still, I mean, unbelievable, the gall of these guys. Divine inspiration, the way it works, is such a mystery that Peter's personality seemingly is coming out here, remembering the detail that they broke his roof in order to get that guy in. Uh, but then they let down the bed, on which the paralytic was lying, verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, and if you underline or circle words, there's a word to circle, because faith is not invisible, despite what people will tell you. James said faith without works is dead. Jesus saw their faith. By what they did, they demonstrated that they had faith. And because Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are are forgiven you. Wait a minute. <laughs> That's not what we brought him for. We brought him to be healed. Don't you understand that? We were hoping that you would take away his paralysis. But where does Jesus begin? With forgiveness for his sins. Isn't that something? It tells you something. Well, it tells you a whole lot about the God that we serve. That what might be the most important thing to us is not necessarily the most important thing to him. Now, I'm thoroughly convinced that these four friends 
brought this man here that Jesus would heal him physically. But he first deals with the spiritual need of the paralytic because what good would it do for Jesus to heal this man so he could go out and shoot a round of golf if his sins are not forgiven? If he does not have communion with Jesus, if he's not going to heaven someday as a result of that. Now, just so you understand, I want to make this very clear because people can misunderstand in a section like this, that there's no indication at all from Jesus that he is suggesting that this man was especially sinful or that the condition that he was in was caused by his sin. Nor am I suggesting that anybody that is suffering here this morning for anything is because of your sin. But what I am saying, what I believe Jesus is saying, is that God's desire is to address our more immediate needs. What he deems to be the most important concerns, the most important things in our lives, he wants to deal with first. So often is the case in our lives that the very thing that you and I are praying for that dominates, that occupies a lot of our prayer, the problem or the problems in our life is not the problem. From God's perspective, there's another underlying problem. Even if it's not the thing that is causing the physical or the emotional disruption in my life, there is something that God is using this to bring us to him because there's something that he wants to deal with on a spiritual level. And that can be frustrating for those of you who are going through pain or suffering or having an emotional or a relational type of problem, a financial problem in your life. Because to us, that's a big thing. Because we are so temporally focused. But God eternally focused, always seeing the big picture. It's like um, a parade procession. If you and I were to go down on January 1st to the parade of roses and get ourselves a spot so we could watch all the floats and the marching bands come by, to us, the parade is the whoever is in front of us at that point in time. We're not particularly able to see um, those floats and bands that have passed us, and we're not able to see those that have already started but have yet to come our direction. But if you were to take a helicopter or a plane above it, you'd be able to see that whole parade for miles extending out, and you would know it was all happening at the same time. It's not the best way to describe it, but it's one way to demonstrate to you that God is able to see past, present, and future. He's able to see the start from the finish, and could it just be, is it at least possible that whatever it is that God has brought into your life, whatever problems you're going through, whatever difficulties you're going through, they're not interruptions. They're not disruptions. They're meant to be there to drive you to him. That you would not be as good a Christian as you are. And you say, well, I'm not a very good Christian. But you're the best Christian that you can be because he allows those things into your life and that God knows what's best for us. And he brings those things. He allows those things so that we will go to him. No matter what, though, for sure, you have to conclude that he knows what our greatest needs are. And that's why he begins here by talking to a paralytic and beginning with a paralytic by saying, son, your sins are, for, are forgiven you. And some of the scribes, verse 6, these are the religious leaders being held captive by their own rationale, were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God 
alone. So there are two questions that the scribes ask in their hearts there in verse 7. It doesn't seem like they said them out loud, but they were thinking these things, scribes were. And the second of those two questions is absolutely accurate. They said, who can forgive sins? Or they thought, who can forgive sins but God alone? That's absolutely true. Only God can forgive sins. So their reasoning goes something like this. If this Jesus character claims the power to forgive sins, because he just said, son, your sins are forgiven you. If he claims the power to forgive sins, and only God can forgive sins, then this man just claimed to be God. Bingo, you win the pink bunny. You figured it out. That's exactly what he is declaring to do. It's exactly what's happening in yet another scene where Jesus is showing us what he is claiming to be by the things that he does. And in this instance, of course, that he is God by what he shows us, not the least of which we see here in verse 8, where Jesus reveals that he knew what they were thinking. He says, but immediately, verse 8, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed, and walk? This is a perfect question posed by Jesus to the scribes in order to challenge them as to what they were thinking. Because in practicality, what would be easier? Think about it. Both are impossible to do from a mere human being. If you were to bring a paralytic up here in front of the sanctuary this morning to me, as powerless as I am, the only thing that I could do, what would be easier for me to do, would be to say, son, your sins are forgiven you. And some might think that I actually could do that, while most of you would think that I'm outside of my mind for saying that. And hang around long enough, you'll probably come to that conclusion here anyway. But it is certainly easier outwardly to simply declare that someone is forgiven, right, than to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. Why? Because one of them can be tested. So if I say, arise, take up your bed and walk, and the paralytic doesn't get up and walk, then you all know right away that I am a fraud. And that's exactly why Jesus constructed this test. He's going to perform a miracle here, but as I've been alluding to, he's performing a miracle for a very specific reason. And all you have to do is look at the first five words of verse 10, and you'll understand where Jesus is coming from. He says, but that you may know. Why is he going to heal this paralytic? So that they would know. Great line. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all. Which is saying something. It's one thing for a paralytic to sit up. It's one thing for a paralytic to stand up. 
It's even another thing for a paralytic to walk. But to have him pick up his bed and maneuver through a crowd full of people, not stepping on toes and hands, smacking people in the head with that bedroll as he was carrying as he was walking by, that is a complete and whole entire healing on the part of Jesus, that he could maneuver around in this crowded room to get out the door. And now this bed that had carried him all these years, he's now carrying. This bed that had been a sign of his sickness has now become the sign of his cure, so that it says, all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And that was the point. I'm not in any way calling into question that Jesus wasn't interested in healing this man because he obviously did heal him, but he did it so that everyone would know that he had the power to forgive sins on earth. That was the point. And also, add to that as well, he also wanted them to know something else that was very important, didn't he? If only God can forgive sins, and it's easier to say your sins are forgiven you, then arise, take up your bed and walk, then what is also Jesus saying by what he did? That he is God. Oh, Jesus never claimed to be God in the Bible. Or maybe he did, but it was just in the book of John. No religious leader, if we could bring one back, that saw Jesus or listened to Jesus preach, not a single one of them would listen to that lie that is told to people in the world today. Not a single one of them. Because he does it here by what he does in several ways. And even if once they assumed that, he doesn't speak up and correct them, then what is he also doing? He's in essence lying to them. If you are on a job interview and I'm interviewing you and it says on your resume that you went to Sacramento State and I say, oh, so you're a graduate of Sacramento State, huh? And you don't say anything, it's the same as lying because you allowed me to assume something that you know is not true. And so Jesus here, he doesn't have to come out like he did in the book of John and say, I am that I am. He didn't have to say that. He doesn't have to say, I am God, period. He doesn't have to say that. He can merely just not say something when they assume it. If he was just a prophet, if he was just a miracle worker, then he would make sure when they misunderstood, he would go, hold on, wait a minute. I don't want to deceive anybody here. I'm not claiming to be God. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just here. God has given me this temporary period of time in which I have authority to forgive sins on earth, but that's all. But he doesn't do that here by what he does, by what he does not do, even in his silence. Jesus declares himself to be God, sent on a mission from heaven to offer up the forgiveness of sins. Now here's where it gets a little tricky and why I wanted to go just a little bit further than just this story this morning. And before you throw anything at me, listen to the full statement, okay? Jesus only came to offer forgiveness for just one type of person. Only select individuals qualify. Everybody's a little nervous right now. That's what I'm going to say. The only people that can receive forgiveness for the sins are people that think that they are sinners. 
right? Someone who doesn't think they're a sinner, God cannot extend that offer. He can't heal them. He can't cure them because they don't see the need. And that, in the calling of Matthew here, we're going to see how important that idea is. Verse 13, Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now, you think that the IRS has some issues today. In that day... I perceive that you think that the IRS has some issues today. In that day, tax collectors were given authority from the Roman government to over-collect, and they could keep the difference. So naturally, people didn't like tax collectors very much at all. And so I find that interesting here, that in the calling of Matthew, as he is going to be united with these four fishermen that we saw were called in Mark chapter 1. I don't know if Matthew was their tax collector, but fishermen still had to pay taxes, and so that would have been an awkward um, introduction. Uh, hey, the fisherman, meet the tax collector here. He's going to be one of my disciples also, because they were hated in that day. Another thing I think also to point out about Matthew that is unique as well is that because tax collectors could overcollect, most of them were pretty wealthy. And because of that, those jobs were high in demand. And so Matthew, in a lot of ways, in coming to follow Jesus, is making a bigger sacrifice. The fishermen could always just go back to fishing. But this job, Matthew's job, would have been taken by somebody else immediately upon his exit. So he is really making a great sacrifice, leaving behind his career. We said last week that God desires to work in your life where you're at and what you're doing. And he doesn't always call people to leave their careers to do something for him in a full-time capacity, but sometimes he does. And sometimes he calls people to leave some things behind in their lives that are in their way. Sometimes God's called us to make big sacrifices in calling him, and Matthew models that. His career, his reputation within the community, the shouts of hypocrite, yeah, you were a tax collector, and now you're following Jesus, whatever. Which is exactly what the world tries to do to us. Well, I grew up with you. Don't try to tell me you believe Jesus. Now I know what you're really about. The mighty dollar salesperson that you are. That's exactly what Matthew is doing. It appears here he is full committal. There's a going away party for him. Verse 15. Now it happened as he was dining. Jesus here has been invited over in Levi's house. That many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, because they were separatists, and they believed that to the extent that you could remove yourself from the world would determine how holy you were. That's not necessarily true as Jesus shows us, that he hung out with tax collectors and sinners. Now, some of us, in this room, and you let the Lord minister to your heart on this. Some of us in this room need to spend more time with sinners and tax collectors. Some of us need to spend less time. Some of us need more Christian fellowship. Others are too involved with being separated 
unto our lives that we don't spend enough time reaching out here. Jesus hung out to the point where the scribes and Pharisees are like, what are you doing? Hanging out with these people. And he even questioned his disciples. It says they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Because for a religious leader in that day, tax collector was a synonym for sinner. And I agree. Tax collectors are sinners. But so are veterinarians and attorneys and school teachers and bricklayers. And that was their problem to the point where the religious leaders came up with a name for Jesus. It's not something you first heard in a song. The religious leaders were the ones who first called Jesus a friend of sinners. And I don't know if they could have ever given him a better title than that one right there. Jesus, friend of sinners. Of course he would dine with them. Of course he would be here in our midst this morning. He bore our sins and died on the cross for our sins. And now he calls us a friend. But there's really only one way that you can be a friend of Jesus. You can only be a friend of Jesus if you're a sinner. Isn't that kind of tricky? Only if you're a sinner. Only if you know that you're a sinner can you be a friend of Jesus Christ. See, that's what the religious leaders didn't understand. Not just about Jesus, but about themselves. And this is a sad verse, verse 17, last verse. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I can't reach people who don't think that they're sick. I didn't come to call the righteous. You don't want to know why Jesus didn't come to call the righteous? You know the answer, right? Because there aren't any. There are none righteous. So what did he say? What is he saying here? He's saying came for the sick. I guess you aren't sick. And so I didn't come for you. Apparently. The true paralytics in this story were the religious leaders who thought there was nothing wrong with them. Reminds me of the parable Jesus told in Luke 18 about the Pharisee and the tax collector. You probably remember it. I'll just read it to you. Um, he said it was a parable for those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous while despising others. So two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself, God, I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess, and the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There is nothing more paralyzing in the world than someone who thinks that they're basically not sick. 
And I'm not just talking about unbelievers here, although that is the more immediate context. Right, and if I was sitting here in a room with mostly unbelievers, that's what I would talk about. But because I'm sitting in a room with mostly believers, I think it's important that we pull away from this what God is speaking to our hearts. And that is this, that the most paralyzed Christian in the whole world is the one who thinks he does not have to repent. Is the one then whose problems become magnified because rather than seeing those problems as God's way of driving us to him so that he can address something spiritual in our lives, those things totally and completely dominate our prayer life and everything that we think. Feeling justified, feeling righteous in what we do, we miss out on what God wants to say to us and is highest for our lives. Because what is our greatest need? What is our greatest need? Our greatest need ultimately is not to have your back fixed. It's not to improve your financial situation. It's not to improve your marriage. It's not to improve any relationship in this world at all whatsoever. Your greatest need is none of those things, and yet that seems to dominate about 99% of our thinking and prayer life. Our greatest need lies exclusively in Him. And that's why when the paralytic comes to Jesus Christ, he begins by addressing his spiritual need, which was for Jesus Christ, above and beyond everything else. And if it's possible, if you believe this morning that God is sovereign, and I'm not saying stop praying for your condition. I'm not saying don't pray for your trials. Do those things, but realize God's sovereign. He's allowed those things into your life to draw you close to him because he knows what you need most. He knows that you are most in need of him. I'll just tell you folks this. I wasn't going to get into it. But on Thursday as I was preparing, studying, and had a prayer meeting that night, I was just hanging out with the Lord after I looked at this chapter. And I don't talk about this stuff, number one, because I don't want to talk about me, and number two, because I don't want to spook anyone. But I felt as I was praying, I don't know how to describe it, some kind of oppression that I hadn't felt in 10 or 12 years to the point where almost literally I felt like it had paralyzed me. And you know, I don't like to talk about weird things. I try to just keep it simple to the text. But what was happening was pretty bizarre to the point where I did, I felt like I was incapable at that moment in time of doing anything at all tying my shoes except one thing which was to cry out to Jesus without him you can do absolutely no thing not one thing and don't forget that that no matter what it is and I don't know what it is whatever you have trust me Someone here in this room does too. And someone in this world has it worse. Your greatest need is not to get that fixed. Your greatest need always will be day by day, moment by moment. It will be Jesus Christ. The answers are always in him. You believe me this morning? They're always in him. Let's pray together. Father, we... We thank you and we praise you.
And Lord, we are completely